Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now Welcome back to Murder Under the Midnight Sun. Tonight I've got a real doozy of an episode for you, possibly the most scandalous case to ever come out of Alaska, and it definitely ranks up there as one of the most well-known. The story was all over the place not that long ago, so you may actually already know it, but I guarantee you don't know all the details, and that's why I'm here to bring them to you. Before we get into it, I want to thank my gorgeous patrons. You guys give me life and you keep motivating me to do this. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, simply click the link in the show notes. You'll get access to extra content, which I promise I will release a new bonus episode this month, as well as me mailing you goodies whenever I feel like it because I enjoy doing that. Next up, I'll be sending out some Valentine's goodies for everybody. So if you want to get in on it, just click the link, sign up, and I'll be your new best friend. Now, let's get into tonight's episode. The woman at the heart of tonight's episode is an enigma. In 2006, Michelle Linehan, a resident of Washington State, was a 33-year-old mother to one child and wife of several years to a respected doctor. By all appearances, she was a classy and well-put-together woman, along with being a wonderful mother, wife, neighbor, and friend. But then one day in October of that year, she was suddenly arrested on charges of murder. Her dark secrets from her life a decade prior and 2,000 miles away were coming back to haunt her dreamy suburban existence. Soon, Washington, Alaska, and the rest of the United States would become privy to details of her much different former life that would paint her to be a manipulative gold digger and possibly a killer. What you believe is up to you to judge by the details in the story I'll be telling. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on the case after you hear the whole thing. It's definitely not nearly as cut and dry as others I've covered. First up, I want to mention my main source for this episode is the book Seduced by Evil by Michael Fleeman. He actually also wrote the main source book that I used for the Rochelle Waterman case. And he's a fantastic true crime writer. I definitely recommend him to you guys if you like to read that. And since Michelle changed her name during the course of this case, when she got married, I'm just going to refer to her by her maiden name, Hughes, to avoid confusion. Michelle Hughes was raised in a tight-knit military family that often moved to various cities in the southern United States before eventually making Louisiana their home. She lived in New Orleans for a while, but as many pretty young things do, she had a dream of making it as a model. In her late teens, she moved to New York to pursue her dream. 
but as she was quite petite, she didn't quite have the right stuff to make it in the modeling industry. Sometime during the years of her late teens and early 20s, she began working as an exotic dancer with the new dream of saving for vet school. During those years, she floated around to different cities, and eventually she stumbled upon a great job opportunity in Alaska. She had heard that there were a lot of lonely men in Alaska, and that working as an exotic dancer there was an easy way to make big money. So she began taking long trips up to Anchorage, where she would work for a while at the Great Alaska Bush Company, yes, it is a strip club, <laughs> to make a big chunk of change, then returning home to New Orleans. She quickly found herself to be quite popular with the club patrons. With her petite frame, long blonde hair, and big blue eyes, she had a certain sense of innocence about her, which she enhanced with her soft Southern accent and the dancer name Bobby Joe. She used what she had to her best advantage and was soon rolling in the big money from dancing. She could make several thousand dollars in just a few weeks or even days. And she began to develop a loyal group of regulars that spoiled her with gifts and money. Many exotic dancers, including the ones that she worked with, have the rule of keeping things within the club and not seeing clients outside of work. But Michelle would quickly begin to bend the rules and blur the lines. One of her regulars that she began to see after hours was a much older gentleman named Scott Hilke. She was in her early 20s and he was about 40 when they met, but he was a very well put together and handsome man. Even better, he had a lot of money. The two began a relationship and Hilke was head over heels for the young feisty blonde. He spoiled her with money and lavish vacations. It was everything Hughes could ever want. After a period of commuting between New Orleans and Anchorage, Hughes decided to settle up north, and Hilke soon moved there to be with her. In 1994, he asked her to marry him, and she said yes. They soon began planning a magical wedding. However, as the following months began to pass, cracks began to form in the facade that was their relationship. Part of this was due to Michelle's habit of spending time with some of her regulars outside of work that she referred to as friends. During the next year or so, Hilke met many of these male friends. He found the situation strange, but he allowed her to make her own choices and so he didn't try to worry about it too much. He soon became aware of two specific regulars of Hughes that she was friends with and spending quite a bit of time with. The first one was a chubby, balding man in his late 30s named John Carlin. Hughes began spending a lot of time outside work with her new friend Carlin and his teenage son. The two became close and things got even more ridiculous when Hughes told Hilke she was taking a, luxuri a luxurious vacation to Europe with Carlin and his son. The second regular that Hilke met was 36-year-old Kent LePink, a bearded, balding, outdoorsy guy originally from Michigan that was in the process of starting his own commercial fishing operation. Both Carlin and LePink spoiled Hughes with gifts, vacations, and money. And along with the thousands she was making daily at work, she was a very well-to-do woman. It wasn't really a love triangle at this point, it was more like a love square. And Hughes had the three men wrapped around her little finger. 
Just a month after Hilke proposed to Hughes, LePink began staying at Hughes' house sometimes, even when Hilke was there. Eventually, Hughes discovered that her home needed major renovations, and she began staying with Carlin, where LePink would also sometimes stay. Carlin was working on her home renovations for her, and LePink was pouring thousands of dollars into the project that was actually intended for his own business. It turned out that a lot of this money wasn't even his own money to give away, it was loans he had received from his family to go specifically towards his business. Hilke's heart wasn't really in the relationship anymore. It was all pretty weird for him, but he did keep taking romantic vacations with Hughes because why the hell not? The relationship between Hughes and the three men were all complicated and would continue to be so until something had to give. And when it did, one of the three men was going to end up dead. On Thursday, May 2nd, 1996, the body of a man was found by a utilities worker on a desolate utilities access road off the highway to Hope, Alaska. This very small town is populated by only a few hundred people, and since that specific road was generally only used by utility workers, the body had been dumped in a somewhat remote location. But in juxtaposition to that, the man had been dumped right next to the road, ensuring that any utilities worker to come along couldn't help but see him. He was fully clothed in jeans and a red jacket, and was laying in a pool of blood. Investigator Ron Belden out of Sodotna and Sergeant Stephen DeHart out of Anchorage were both dispatched to the scene, each of which had about a 90-mile journey to get to the remote area. The man had been shot in the face and stomach and back. Later, a firearms forensic specialist would analyze the expended bullets and shell casings that had been left on the ground and determined that there was exactly one gun that left these very specific marks. It was a Desert Eagle handgun. This gun, while beloved by its users, is not incredibly common, and it's very unique in that it's a very large and powerful handgun with traits of both pistols and semi-automatic rifles. When law enforcement arrived at the scene and the body was analyzed, it became obvious the body had not lain there very long. He had been found early Thursday morning, and it would later be determined that he had been murdered in that spot sometime between Wednesday afternoon and the early morning hours of Thursday. This was a lucky break for law enforcement, since there had not been any animal activity to disturb the crime scene yet. During the autopsy, the coroner found indications of an execution-style death. All three gunshot wounds to the body, in the face, stomach, and back, had been very close range and the bullets had lodged in his body. The coroner determined that the first gunshot went into his back and would have been fatal, but that his killer continued to shoot him a few more times after he had already fallen to the ground. The last shot had been to his face as he lay down on the ground, dying or already dead. Someone had certainly felt a lot of hate for this man and wasn't taking any chances of him surviving. There were zero signs on his body of self-defense or any sort of fight, so the first shot had likely been a complete surprise, which insinuated it was probably someone the victim knew. The investigation kicked into high gear, and law enforcement needed to find out just who the victim was, and then they could find out who was close to the victim and likely to be a suspect. 
Luckily for law enforcement, the bullets and shell casings were far from the only evidence found at the scene. The man actually had several important clues in his pants pockets. There was a checkbook with the names Kent LaPink and Michelle Hughes. There was also a life insurance beneficiary form, which showed that Kent LaPink had recently changed the beneficiary on his insurance policy to be his father. There was also some business cards and other paperwork with the name Scott Hilke on it. There was a USPS receipt for mailing something to Michigan, a set of keys, and a printed email from Michelle Hughes. It was truly a jackpot of evidence that immediately gave investigators several leads to pursue. After the autopsy and using databases at their disposal, law enforcement determined that the victim was 36-year-old Kent LePink. Within hours, investigators had dispatched local law enforcement in Michigan to give a death notification to Kent's family, which included his mother Betsy, his father Kent Sr., and three brothers. But within just a day or two of receiving this death notification from law enforcement, LePink's shocked family received a parcel from Kent which would contain information that would blow the case wide open. It was essentially mail from beyond the grave. The package contained a letter from Kent saying that if anything happened to him, that Hughes, Carlin, and Hilke were to blame and to make sure that they were prosecuted for it. The letter also wrapped up loose ends in his life, such as requesting his family use his life insurance to pay off his debts and to use the rest on themselves. There was also a copy of the change of beneficiary form on a huge life insurance policy, showing that just a few days prior, Kent had made his father and mother prime beneficiaries followed by his brothers. Soon after the death notification had been delivered, Sergeant DeHart contacted Kent's family to get more information on him and his life. And during this contact, he learned about the message that they had received from Kent. They also gave him a bunch of knowledge about Kent and his life growing up. He had grown up in the village of Lakeview, Michigan, in a very well-to-do family that owned a chain of grocery stores. Kent had always been a very socially awkward guy from childhood, and he had a hard time making friends. He was very nervous around women, and into his 30s, really had never had a serious relationship. He had worked for the family business for many years, but around age 30, the rest of his family had realized he had actually been embezzling from the company, and it was a huge amount of money, something like over $100,000. He was then cut out of the family business, but they chose not to criminally prosecute him. Though the family did not want to cut ties with him completely, or at least not his parents, they worried about him and they wanted him to be happy in life, so they kept in touch. But bad blood would remain between him and two of his brothers, who thought that he was just a shitty person. At age 33, Kent got a job on a fishing boat up in Alaska. Commercial fishing in Alaska can be extremely lucrative, and the fishermen often make enough during the short summer to live on for the rest of the year. Kent excitedly moved to Alaska to start the job, and the job and Alaska both turned out to be perfect for his outdoorsy nature, and he could hunt and fish and do all of the outdoorsy things he loved. He really enjoyed the fishing business as well and was making great money. And after working on his first boat, he decided that he eventually wanted to take the steps to get a boat and start his own company. 
It really seemed like Kent's life was turning around, and his family was glad to see he had found somewhere to be happy. And better yet, Kent told them that he had met a girl. Sometime during 1995, Kent began talking about Michelle Hughes. He said she was amazing and it was serious. They were getting married. Kent's parents and one brother came to visit that year and actually met Michelle. They thought she seemed nice and polite, but she did not act very loving towards Kent. It struck them as extremely odd and gave them all a bad vibe about her. They really hoped for Kent's sake that the relationship would work out, though. As the months went on, Kent continued to talk about Hughes and how great life was. As 95 turned into 96, Kent was working hard to get a boat and start his own fishing business for the summer of 1996. He had saved much of his own money, but had also borrowed many thousands of dollars from his parents. In spring of 1996, Kent continued to talk excitedly about marrying Hughes. He said he wanted to marry her at the end of April, but he wasn't sure if it would happen. A few days after this conversation, Kent talked to his folks and complained that Michelle had disappeared on him. He said that she would occasionally go off on her own for a few days at a time, and she had done it again, and he was really down in the dumps over it. His parents were about to go on a trip to Florida to meet up with his brother Ransom, and they invited Kent to fly down and join them and paid for his ticket. They were really surprised when they saw him. He had been seemingly happy for the several months since they had last seen him, but he didn't look like he was in good shape, and he seemed really depressed and agitated the whole time he was there. He also revealed he was almost completely broke and explained that he had spent about $50,000, which was the vast majority of his savings on helping Hughes remodel her house. He was wanting to get married as soon as possible, preferably within the next week or two. However, while he sent email after email to Hughes throughout his time in Florida, she wouldn't reply. Finally, Ken's mom, Betsy, tried to get a hold of Michelle and was able to, but all Michelle wanted to discuss was if Kent's family was going to be paying for the whole wedding or not. After Kent left, over the next few weeks, Betsy talked to Hughes on the phone a few times. She seemed to actually be getting excited about wedding preparations, but continued to assume that Kent's family would be paying for the whole thing, even though they'd made it clear several times they were only contributing a few thousand dollars. Towards the end of April, Kent's dad, Kent Sr., visited him in Alaska for a few days. While there, Kent revealed that Hughes' family had apparently gifted him with a $1 million life insurance policy with Hughes as the beneficiary as a wedding present. Kent's family members were all very disturbed by that situation. They thought it was a really bizarre wedding present and urged Kent to rethink his relationship with Michelle, but he was adamant that he wanted to marry her. After Kent Sr. left Alaska and went home to Michigan, He still kept in touch with his son regularly, trying to figure out how the situation was going, and it was still going pretty weird. At one point, towards the end of April, Kent said that Michelle had gone to Hope, Alaska to stay in a cabin with Carlin and had stolen Kent's laptop and taken it with her. He said he was going to find her and get his laptop back. However, that trip to Hope went fine, and he returned back to Anchorage and informed his family that he couldn't find Michelle. Then within just a few days, the Lapinks had received the devastating news that Kent had been murdered and received that package from him in the mail. 
When investigators learned all of this information from the Lapinks, they then had to try to untangle the knot of this mystery and try to figure out how everything connected. The first lead they'd be pursuing was the address found on the checkbook that was in the names of both Hughes and LePink. Palmer-based troopers Massey and Brandenburg were dispatched to find and question Hughes. When they arrived at her house, they found tiny blonde 23-year-old Michelle. Also, John Carlin Sr. and Jr. were at her house working on renovations. She explained that she and Kent were engaged and that they had been staying with the Carlins while their house was being remodeled. But then, not that long into the conversation, she contradicted herself by saying that she had actually just posed as his fiance for his family's sake to hide his homosexuality. And the two were actually totally platonic business partners. She said her boyfriend was actually a man named Scott Hilke. When the officers that had gone there finally revealed that they had found a body that they believed to be Kent, she broke down but the officers there that day later stated that she seemed to be acting, and badly. They asked Hughes about her movements for the previous couple of days, and she said that she had been on vacation in Lake Tahoe with her boyfriend Scott Hilke, and she had returned in the late night of May 1st, early morning hours of May 2nd, and that Carlin had picked her up at the airport. She said she had last spoken to Kent on Tuesday when she called him from Tahoe. During the initial stage of the investigation, Hughes and Carlin both presented themselves as being open and honest and willing to help in any way they could, answer any questions, and neither of them hired lawyers. But one thing Carlin would not allow was to let law enforcement question his son, and since he was underage at the time, there wasn't much they could do. And neither Hughes nor Carlin were very shy in slandering the dead man. Hughes described Kent simply as being stupid, and Carlin told law enforcement that Kent was obsessed with sex and had a porn addiction, and showed them the porn that he liked, for some reason. <laughs> the officers questioned both of them as to whether Hughes, Carlin, or LePink owned a firearm, and Hughes volunteered that she believed Kent owned a Desert Eagle 44 caliber that she had once used to learn how to shoot, but Carlin denied that he had ever owned a gun. Then when officers asked Hughes if there was anything to be gained from Kent's murder, Hughes bluntly responded by saying, life insurance. After this first conversation in Palmer, Carlin easily allowed the troopers into his Anchorage house to look around since Kent had been staying there. While looking around, they came across an empty gun case and other gun accessories, but Carlin explained it was for a gun which had been stolen in New Jersey before he moved to Alaska. So he just kept those for the memories. They also impounded Kent's Dodge Omni, which was in Carlin's driveway. They found a ton of paperwork in there, which would give them even more helpful information. They found letters which appeared to be back and forth between Carlin and Hughes, discussing her upcoming secret getaway to a cabin in Hope, as well as Carlin discussing plans to leave the country. The email discussion about Hope led the detectives back to Kent's story about going to Hope to look for Michelle, thinking she had gone there with Carlin. So some officers were dispatched to Hope to question any residents and see if any of them had seen any of the main players in this case. 
One of the women, when shown a photo of Carlin, recognized him. She said he had been in the area, supposedly looking for his fiancée, Michelle. It was all getting very, very strange. Law enforcement were eager to find the laptop that Kent kept mentioning because they figured it probably had some information on it, which is why he was so determined to get it back from her. And when they asked her about it, she said that she had actually sent it to her sister's house in Utah because she wanted her sister to reformat the hard drive for her. She also said it was partially hers and she had never actually stolen it from Kent. She said she'd already mailed it off to her sister. However, law enforcement would later learn that she actually mailed it the next day after that conversation. In just the first few weeks of the investigation, law enforcement were collecting mountains of evidence, multiple suspects, and many new witnesses. Brian Brunden was a lawyer that came forward to law enforcement to explain how just a few weeks prior, LePink and Hughes had come in to see him to change his will and put her as the prime beneficiary. He explained that the two had gotten into a weird argument right in front of him in which Hughes accused LePink of being gay. It was so weird that it stuck out in his head and then when he saw an article about Kent's murder, he knew he had to come forward to law enforcement. And actually just a few days after the first appointment, LePink had returned to the lawyer's office telling him that his fiance Hughes had disappeared with his computer, car, and other expensive belongings, and that he was there to revert his will back to have his family as the beneficiaries. The lawyer had such a strong feeling about Hughes's integrity or lack thereof, that he put aside his professionalism and basically told the pink that this situation with Hughes was going to end badly if he didn't get out. And that appointment was just one week prior to LePink's murder. They also spoke with the insurance company for the life insurance policy, and those employees told about their strange encounters with Hughes and LePink. LePink had come in multiple times during the month of April, changing his beneficiary from Hughes to his family, changing his mind. Then the week before his death, he came for the last time and removed Hughes entirely, despite having completely removed his parents during the last change. They too found the situation to be extremely weird. And just about a week prior to his death, LePink and Hughes had spent thousands of dollars on cabinets for her home renovation. But the week before his death, LePink attempted to cancel the cabinet order without Hughes's knowledge. But since it was on the checking account that belonged to both of them, they were trying to figure out how they could do that. But a week later, Hughes spoke with the home furnishing store about the cabinets, stating that she absolutely still wanted them. And oh, by the way, Kent is dead and he's no longer asking for his money back, so let's make sure that order goes through. And this was within just a few hours of her allegedly learning of Kent's death from law enforcement. Things got more complicated from there. Law enforcement learned from a jeweler that about eight months prior to Kent's murder, Carlin had purchased an engagement ring for Hughes, which they had later seen her wearing in the store buying more items. This was while she was supposedly engaged to Kent and probably still technically engaged to Hilke. The news of a possible relationship between Hughes and Carlin sparked major interest in law enforcement. If true, it was very suspicious that they wouldn't have mentioned it during any questioning so far. 
In fact, the two had both clearly stated that they were just close friends. Just a few days after Kent's death, Hughes went to the same jewelry store and tried to use thousands in store credit that was in his name. She wanted to buy herself something shiny just a few days after her supposed fiancé was found dead. A month and a half into the investigation, law enforcement realized that Michelle seemed to have gone off the radar, but they did easily track down Carlin in Anchorage. They soon found out that Carlin and Michelle had purchased a Class A luxury motorhome together. And at the end of June, law enforcement was contacted by Hugh's sister, Melissa, who gave them some very troubling information. About a week prior to her phone call, Hughes had shown up with Carlin's teenage son at the campground where Melissa and her husband worked in Utah. They had met up with Scott Hilke, and the three of them appeared to be having a wonderful vacation together. Melissa relayed that when she had discussed Ken's death with Hughes, she had basically said that he had got what was coming to him, and she wished that he had been tortured first. Melissa told law enforcement that Hughes had said she owned the laptop, and wanted Melissa to completely restore the laptop to factory settings, but Melissa refused to do so because she believed that it belonged to Kent. Law enforcement got a search warrant for Hughes and Carlin's residences and Hughes's car. They weren't able to find a gun anywhere, but they did find two holsters, including the one that was at Carlin's. Soon after the searches, law enforcement learned that Hughes was in the RV now visiting her family in Louisiana. They got a warrant for the RV, and Kent's laptop was found inside. The two main officers working the case flew to Louisiana to get the laptop and to speak to Michelle and her family. When they got there, they were able to speak with her family, but they learned that the very day they had flown in, she had boarded a flight back to Alaska. And that is where I will leave this case off. Next time, we will get even more into the muck with these people. Hope you like this episode. I'll see you next time.